Uh, when we begin. I'm worried about like chewing sounds, but I'm sure you are accustomed to all of dealing with that. Well, this is the thing. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. So we're sat here in Perilla in Stoke Newington, London, and outside the window I can see Newington Green, and just beyond that is where the women's liberation writer Mary Wollstonecraft lived, mm. which I'm sure you're aware of. Mm. Um, but getting back to the restaurant itself, um, why have you chosen Perilla for us to come meet and talk about your book? Well, I'm sort of emotionally attached to this in two ways. One, because th this is up the road from where I grew up i grew up in finsbury park newington green kind of area so i know this place like the back of my hand but also because the two guys that run this place ben marks and matt emerson uh, i went to school with and grew up with them and uh, ben is a fantastic chef and matt has really transformed what used to be a sort of relatively crappy part of newington green into a real hub so i love coming here um and I love the boys, and yeah, any chance I get, I come back. <laughs> now, Matt isn't here, but Ben is just stood at the back of the restaurant over there. We'll give him a little wave. We're here to talk about your book, which was published last year, and which is called What Women Want, Fun, Freedom, and an End to Feminism. Mm -hmm. It's a short read that concisely lays out your principles on four areas of public and private life, free speech, the body, sex, and work. Before we go any further, though, I'd like to ask sort of what are the historical roots of your feminism and why do you choose to apply them so rigorously today? Mm. Well, the roots of feminism is something that's, uh, I think, quite misunderstood and the history of it. So we're talking in 2018 and this has been a big year for feminism because it's 100 years since some, uh, some being the important word, women got the vote um, and in the representation against the People Act. And lots of people have talked about the suffragettes as feminists and that's completely wrong the word feminism was used uh, in the late 1800s but only came into popular use in the 1960s and 70s and 80s with gender theorists like judith butler and people like that so from the start feminism has claimed a much grander more solidified theory than it actually owns you know people call the suffragettes first wave feminism then they call the sort of sexual revolution of the 60s, 70s and 80s, second wave feminism and it turns into sort of mad bra burning and all that kind of stereotype and then lots of people talk about the fact that we might today be in third or fourth wave feminism and really from my point of view uh, feminism has always been the original identity politics which really took hold post-sexual revolution with anti-porn feminists like Catherine McKinnon, Andrew Dworkin, um, who said that men and women are fundamentally different and, more importantly, that uh, the patriarchy exists and that men oppress women structurally um, and that every way in which a woman should look at her life should be through this particular identity politics lens. Right. Um, so I cannot find many redeeming factors within feminism as a political theory from the start, because from my point of view, it's never been about necessarily women's liberation, but more about uh, identity politics. 
which as we see today is quite a closed view of the world. Um, so if I was sort of to align myself, I would say that I am a classic women's liberationist. So talking about the first chapter of your book on free speech, you recall a moment in 2014 when the governments of the UK and Australia banned a self-styled Swiss pickup artist named Julian Blanc, who I believe is now reinvented as a a self-development guru online, (laughs) hopefully as much for himself as anyone else. And this was done for disseminating dating tips to young men based on some pretty cynical views of of women. Mm. And so this event may pale in comparison to the many in number and nature that that have, have proliferated since. But what struck you as troubling about this at the time, enough to recall in the first chapter of your book? Well, because I think it was actually really serious. I think on the face of it, you can think, well, this guy is very unpleasant and the views that he have are not in step with 21st century society. You know, he encouraged men to do things like persistently badger a woman until she said yes, to um, assume that women want it when, even when they say that they don't. You know, all this kind of rubbish. But people were calling from him to be banned from the country. Now, that's quite a wild step, in my opinion. And not because uh, I care necessarily about Julian Blanc's ability to enter the UK, but because it's what it says about us in this country, that we would be so susceptible to his views that we cannot even be allowed to be in the same geographical space as him. Mm. Um, And also that he is so dangerous that he would pose a threat to women. Now, I got into a lot of trouble at the time on Sky News um, with a, a feminist when I said, the best way to deal with these kind of guys is to deck them uh, which for anyone who isn't Irish means punch them in the face and I always thought decking was kicking <laughs> no, it, well, being decked it always, it always meant it's like hit the deck person's foot coming into contact with your shin particularly yeah. <laughs> but no but fair enough but it's sort of crude it was a, I, I it defer was a, to your Irish yeah. <laughs> it was a crude way of saying really what I really meant was it is so easy to deal with these kind of guys you know these kind of just rude obnoxious idiots and women have been dealing with them for a very long time i've dealt with a few of them in my past it's a no-brainer kind of thing and it's actually from my point of view very insulting to say that women can't deal with that and to say that we need the state to protect us from such a fool as julian blunt And the reason why I started the book with that is because that is my fundamental issue with contemporary feminism. Perfect time. Thank you. So this is Ben, the owner, explaining to us what's on the table here. So this is a broccoli blue cheese tart. So we've Mm -hmm. got a a gorgonzola custard in the middle, braised broccoli on top, and roasted hazelnuts. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, let's try this one. Wow. (laughs) So this is kale. And gorgons, did you say gorgonzola oh custard? It's amazing. Oh, that's everything you want from broccoli. <laughs> oh, wow. Is this, the, this is the salad. You write in summary of that chapter, no one delights in foul or insulting language. As a society committed to freedom and tolerance, we should challenge anyone who oversteps the mark and argue with ideas we don't like. But I suppose the hard question for anyone of your persuasion to uh, answer is, where is the mark? You also write in summary that free speech must come with no ifs and no buts. So how do you resolve this dilemma? Mm. Well, there is a mark, and it's subjective. For everyone, it will be different. So 
I, I always use the example of uh, in relation to feminism uh, some people get really upset when someone on the street shouts at them sexy legs or uh, great tits or you know something horrible and crass like that um, I would be much more offended personally if someone shouted at me fat cow right so, <laughs> so people's markers and people's lines are different um, and that's fine the point is um the way in which you deal with it so i think the way in which you deal with someone overstepping the mark is totally up to you you can ignore it you can shout back uh if it happens online you can block people you know all that sort of those tools are there for you and you should engage with them if you want to but the reason why i say free speech no ifs no buts is that i think you should never silence someone no matter how bad it gets and uh in that way free speech has no line has no mark there is no overstepping the boundaries in relation to free speech from my point of view you touch on a contradiction in your analysis of feminism of the body that while we're constantly made aware of feminist-led campaigns to ban bare breasts in lads magazines for example or page three of the tabloids we're also told to join feminists in advocating for nipples to be shown in public uh, or in support of women who take every opportunity to expose their bodies in public to promote body positivity, or, for example, in art, whether it be theatre or literature or film, to break down taboo in society. You argue that these are essentially all fetishizations of the female body which commit the very offence that they aim to confront. So is this contradiction maybe solved, in a sense, by making a distinction about whose pleasure the female body is generally marketed for and who controls and censors these images? and about women taking back ownership of their physicality. Um, does this argument cut it for you? Uh, sort of, because I think that nudity, as it were, for women is uh, not a bad thing. And uh, I, I really don't like the sort of conservative strain among some older feminists who say page three is dreadful, porn is dreadful. I like the argument that says I should be allowed to go out in whatever length skirt I want and no one's business but mine I like that but there is a real double standard when it comes to women's bodies uh, among contemporary feminists and it's one that's deeply class loaded and I give you an example why at the time when page three the anti page three no more page three campaign um, really reached its peak and just before the sun stopped publishing in newspapers um, topless pictures of girls there was this argument of page three is exploitative it's selling women's bodies for men's pleasure it's demeaning to women it's dangerous there was all these arguments and at the same time there was a campaign for free the nipple which you mentioned which was a pro breastfeeding argument which was this sort of cooked up idea that society hated women breastfeeding in public which is really not true now, really, I think what the centre of both of those things was free the nipple, showing women's boobs, not just women who are breastfeeding, but lots of young, artsy millennials on Instagram posting very sexy pictures of themselves topless, the Kardashians um, being celebrated as these like women who owns their sexuality. Harriet Harman said, you know, these are empowering women. Um, all of those boobs, those middle class, those rich boobs, they're fine, they're great, they're empowering. The Essex girl who's got a 34 double D chest and sells a picture of it for 300 quid a pop. That's terrible. That's wrong. That's demeaning. And you have to say, what's the difference? I mean, it's a good boobs, bad boobs thing. It's a good middle class 
artsy boobs, bad, working class, sexual boobs. And from my point of view, I think that if feminism is to mean anything about freeing up women to use their bodies how they want it's without judgment i get stick for saying that i'm pro the decriminalization of prostitution and that's not because i think prostitution is a fabulous career it's a crappy career and i would dissuade any woman from getting involved in it however if you want to i think you should be allowed to in the same way that i think you should be allowed to make decisions about your bodily autonomy in relation to abortion rights i think these are all the same thing you have to say do women own their bodies or not the book was published just before the Me Too movement and so missed the beginning of that event by a matter of months, pretty much. Um, but I know from other interviews I've seen of yours that your main worry on this is about justice, about due process and the presumption of innocence before proven guilt uh, and the way in which these have been treated as kind of secondary to social justice and to justice as defined by the leaders of the movement. And we happen to be talking on a day that the British billionaire Philip Green is exposed as the man at the centre of the biggest uh, case of sexual harassment in the UK thus far. How far off its centre do you think the movement has spun? I think it was far off its centre or, or wrong or way off the mark from the start um, I don't think that Me Too has started good and gone bad The start uh, being of course that women were sharing their stories online and that this was raising some healthy level of awareness at least at the beginning Well I'd question the word healthy uh, I think certainly the move to encourage women to be vocal about things that they want to be vocal about is always a good thing um, but the problem is Me Too from the start was about celebrating victimhood in a way that I think is wholly unhealthy. But why, why is this a celebration of victimhood? Why do you use the word celebration? Because you kind of got brownie points for engaging in it. And I felt a really ugly end of it when I was continually asked and continually told, have you ever been sexually harassed? You clearly have never been sexually harassed if you could come out with a criticism of me too because you absolutely don't understand what it's about. They guessed wrong as it happens, but... I think it's been really attacked, uh, Justice, uh, specifically by proponents of the Me Too movement who are now suggesting with the sort of other hashtags like hashtag I believe her, is that women should automatically be believed and that men, because it's majority men who are on the other side of this scenario, should be uh, automatically condemned. Now, with a case like what we're talking about right now, Philip Green... I can imagine that that guy has done some unpleasant things in his time. Uh, I can I can probably believe that a lot of what's been said about him is true. But when it comes to how you judge someone, especially in relation to a, a case like this, you have to suspend your gut feelings and go on evidence. I was in a debate at the Cambridge Union uh, last week and one of my opponents said, oh, there's all this fear about, you know, the presumption of innocence and it's not really a big deal. Like it's, you know, I think it's far more important that, uh, that women should be prevented from being harassed than some guys being accused wrongly. And you just have to think, hang on. You know, from my point of view, and I think should be from society's point of view, there is nothing worse than being falsely accused, nothing worse than being innocent and being wrongly accused. Well, one of the fortunate consequences of the political upheaval that we've seen over the past few years is that unignorable class divisions uh, have kind of knocked a lot of assumptions about collective identity off kilter. How have the middle class 
monopolized feminism, in your view? This is something that you touch on again in the book. How, how has this happened? Oh, because they're calling the shots and because they're saying what it is to be a good woman, to be a good feminist. So uh, I always make this point. You do not have feminist meetings happening in town halls. You don't have feminist groups uh, happening in community centers. You, you know, we have a, a stridently feminist political party, the Women's Equality Party. Its membership is poor. And that's not me trying to dig at them. It's just reality. Uh, this is not something that women or men want to coalesce around uh, normal working people. They're not interested in this. And How does their view of freedom differ from the middle class? Uh, well, I, I don't want to sound workerist and sort of fetishize the working class as this ideal. There's lots of problems within the working class. But I think certainly for working class women, I am one of them uh, and grew up around them you have more of a sense of yourself you have more of a sense of your own power and you don't take crap and you're you're hard in that kind of a way and and you you, you don't feel as entitled in a good sense because it means that you're ready to scrap when times get tough and have you ever decked anyone huh have you ever decked anyone i have unfortunately not very proud of it my i wouldn't do it now the grand age of 26 but when i was in my teens i had less inhibitions um perhaps i took less crap <laughs> male or female oh, oh, oh boys yeah 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 particularly posh boy it was and um, he deserved it but the there we go <laughs> see, I, you now you see my you prejudice coming out early. <laughs> Yourself, well, Camille Paglia calls it street smarts. Well, that's what she calls it. Yeah, yeah exactly. She, she refers to it as, as not being just a working class thing, but a human thing. Essentially, we were all at one point street smart. Mm. Um, and we're losing it even further as we go forward into the hyper-digitized world of tomorrow, where pretty soon we'll all be uploading our egos to the cloud and living in the singularity. And, and what sort <laughs> of debates will proliferate at that point, I wonder? The whole definition of abuse changes i think mm. as physical barriers become both more easily traversable but also our sense of our physical selves becomes dispensable i mean we are in a sense all of us a conduit for all the things that matter to us our memories the people that we love and we are always saving and uploading those things i mean you know that children that you or i have will end up being able to access our memories in some way or other with our consent it'll be like our will i give you access to my cloud account and then all of a sudden you have my entire life wow I completely went off piece there. Um, <laughs> You've gotten into the philosophy of being. I like it. See, that's my philosophy background kicking in. <laughs> um, the second to last question I had, had you been born male, how might you have chosen to confront the challenges that contemporary feminism presents to young men today? That is a really interesting question because as it happens, I, I have always thought of myself as a tomboy and have never thought of myself as classically feminine. Um, but because and you are a woman, you've been able to engage with feminism head on, as it were. Yeah, yeah. You haven't had to politely enter the conversation saying, excuse me, ladies, I hope you don't mind me offering my opinion. Yeah. If I was a young man today, mm. I think I would be really quite worried. This idea that if they do something wrong, a harmless mistake or a genuine misconstruing of a situation, that they are bad, evil, abusers, um indulging in rape culture you can see how they're just going to stop trying you argue that for women in rich nations of the world the last genuine struggle for freedom comprises two main fronts abortion rights and childcare. these are the material changes you say women need to fully exercise their freedom today 
And in the Republic of Ireland this summer, a referendum was held uh, on repealing the 18th Amendment to give women the right to an abortion, which succeeded by a 66% majority. So this is the sort of change that has material consequences for a woman's ability to choose the shape and quality of her life. But surely feminism still has a role to play for women in less fortunate parts of the world where this sort of thing is just a long way off. Not Western feminism, not contemporary feminism, not feminism as it stands today. I would encourage any woman fighting injustice around the world to laugh at the crap that we get up to in this country (laughs) and to feel empowered in herself to start a different women's liberation movement which actually got serious about changing the world rather than obsessing over yourself and becoming a very pretty, very right-on little narcissist. Ella Whelan, thank you very much. No, thank you. Well, that is generous. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. That is lovely.